g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 27 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. Steve Fisher back with you once again and joining me from beneath a pile of packing boxes and the remains of his recording studio is Grant McCarran. G'day mate. Hey, how you going man? Well, uh, geez, you sound a bit tired mate. Uh, sounds like you've been a busy boy since we last spoke. Yeah, it's been a very busy time, um, especially the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, getting the vehicle and uh, organising friends and all that to move everything around and I'm definitely in the remaining shell of my recording space here in uh, my stately Bentley Manor. Yes, uh, the PCDU West Recording Facility. <laughs> that's moving fractionally north and slightly west of where it currently is. We're moving uh, about 600 metres away. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so we're, we're in a rush to get this out so we can finally publish this podcast before our listeners start demanding to know where we've been all this time. There you go. Coming up in this week's episode of the podcast, we've got a couple of interviews that we've recorded over the last week or two. Sarge Ahmed joins us uh, once again to discuss uh, the airline profit reporting season and joining him in that discussion is none other than Ben Sanderlands, one of the most senior journalists in this country, and uh, he's from the plane talking blog at crikey.com.au so we were really thrilled that uh, Ben could come and spend some time with us and uh, Grant that was a uh, really great interview which we'll be running first and following that we'll be speaking to Ken Evers and Tim Price now they are about to undertake a uh, flight around the world in a Gippsland Aeronautics uh, air van and uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat to them about that. Also we've got shout outs and some listener mail so Grant uh, why don't we kick it off? Sounds good to me let's get it started. Well, folks, it's profit reporting season for the airlines down in this part of the world, and so we thought we'd better get some people on who, uh, perhaps unlike Grant and myself, know what they're talking about. So uh, Sarge Ahmed joins us back on the line from London. G'day, Sarge. Good evening or good morning for wherever you're listening. And uh, we're glad to have with us this week Ben Sandylands from the Plane Talking blog. G'day, Ben. G'day, folks. How's it going? Cool. Most excellent. It's great to have you on the show, Ben. We've been uh, referring to your works uh, here and there over the uh, the course of the podcast, and it's great to finally be able to chat with you. Yeah, no, I, I enjoy the site. I think, I think we did it. It was good fun, actually. Well, cool. we try to have fun. We sometimes succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Steve has lots of fun until he realises how much editing he has to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, Ben, before we kick off and talk about the uh, the business side of uh, what we're going to do here, uh, tell us a bit about Plane Talking and uh, your path through journalism and aviation. Indeed, Plane Talking's uh, a blog which I never thought would go anywhere and it's um, <clears throat> going like a house on fire. Um, it's uh, part of the uh, Crikey blogs. Crikey's an irreverent um, uh, newsletter that uh, goes to subscribers, basically in Barton, the administrative uh, centre of Australia and Canberra. We are very different to the uh, mainstream media uh, and we're also electronic and so we have uh, two formats. We have a paid uh, subscriber uh, email bulletin and then I get to indulge myself with an air transport blog uh, and I, I frequently file uh, on the same topic for both and uh, you know the story that appears on Crikey will be completely different to what appears on the blog as a rule because I realise I have a different readership on uh, on the blog. That makes makes for a fun world balancing between the two. It's doing well. I'm, I'm I'm truly surprised. I thought the blog was going to be a pain in the uh, in the rear, uh, and it is in the sense it's you know 24/7, 365 media if you want to keep it up. But look, I've had a lot of fun with it. It's my 50th year in uh, journalism. Uh, my uh, my career began with the end of the Ocean Passenger Liner Age. I was the last shipping cadet uh, for the Sydney Morning Herald, the full-time shipping cadet. 
Wow. And uh, the jet age arrived, and um, so I had a very itinerant childhood, going to see with my dad a lot and uh, things like that. So uh, to me, it's a very, very exciting to have spent half a century looking at transport issues. Cool. Lots of lots of experience in there. That's great. Yeah, but tell your children, don't be journalists, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> no, new media, we, we're believers in new media here, guys, so uh, you know we, we have to believe that this is the way to go. Works for us. <laughs> the fun part of, blog, of uh, having a blog is, oh, yeah, now it's open for people to comment. Don't. <laughs> Indeed it is, yes. No, that's that's the scary bit. Um, the number of times I've been very quick with the delete button. Gee, there's some, uh, some savage agendas out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there really are. I, I mean, I just wanted to, to, to step in on this uh, blog commenting thing. I think one of the interesting things that I find with the editorial is I think you have to have some level of disconnect. Uh, I, I know that whatever I put out there is more often than not uh, uh, a molotov of information that I know more people are going to find uh, disagreement with rather than agreement. But uh, the easiest thing is to just to allow readers to, to see what you've written. Either they agree with it or they don't agree with it or they offer a third way. Uh, I, I think the easiest thing is just never to get involved with uh, your readers. If, if they don't like what you read, they won't comment and they won't read. But uh, and, that, and that's the way uh, a lot of new media is working now. And I think the, the, the minute you try and engage with the readership, I, I think it's a slippery slope because that will influence a lot of, uh, you know, your own individual knowledge and your own access to the way you want to portray things. You know, that that's just my take on it. But, you know, this is still I, an I evolutionary that, I thing. I think that's a very wise take, actually, uh, Sarge. I think that's a very good advice. Oh, I assume you wasn't trying to ter- trying to lecture, lecture anybody. It's just something. <laughs> it's something I've learned by default. You know, there's been a few topics that I've put out in the last few years uh, that I've uh, responded to, if nothing else, just to clarify my position on badly phraseology uh, in some of the text I've used. But but other than that, I, I try and steer well clear of after I've written a blog and put it up. Either people like it or they don't. You know, I'll I'll, I'll approve the comments if they're uh, you know worthy for everybody else to read. But uh, I just don't want to engage. It's funny, you know, though, uh, I do know the identity of some of the anonymous um, uh, contributors uh, to my blog, uh, the comments, and I will engage with them because I, I know who I'm talking to, but that's, that's the exception to the rule. And in fact, I'm uh, public enemy, probably number 100 in Germany, um, uh, overnight <laughs> or the previous night for uh, attacking Der Spiegel. Um, um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's, <laughs> that's quite amusing. But there was a story in De Spiegel, which I thought was worth uh, getting translated and, uh, and putting on my blog. Yeah, that was the one about uh, 447. It was the, indeed. It's a yeah. very interesting report, badly flawed in my opinion, but it's only got to be partly correct uh, for Air France to be in really quite mm-hmm. serious trouble. Oh, it was an interesting read. Yeah, and of course, what we do here on this show is uh, we, we actively engage our audience. But uh, what we're doing here is, uh, is is different to what you guys are doing. We basically um, let you guys do all the hard work, and we just uh, do all the comment later on. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I think you guys do a lot of hard work as well. I mean, uh, you know, putting something like this together, you know, takes you know team effort. And to, to coordinate guests on a regular basis as well, when, when you have, you know, 24-7 rolling media, things are changing so fast. Uh, you know, we've got uh, nearly three big major airplane programs going up uh, as well. So uh, to, to keep on top of all that, stick your day job down as well and keep time for family as well. You know, credit to you guys for even allowing us this opportunity to share the platform with you. Oh, it's no problem. It's, uh, I tell you what, um, it's we're certainly a lot busier doing this now than we were back in July when we started. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, that, that's testimony to your success and, you know, and, and long may that continue. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, let's talk about Qantas, guys. Now, they've had a uh, quite a hefty hit to their profit. Their pre-tax profit here is down to $90 million in the first half of the financial year this year. That's down from $288 million from the previous uh, year. 
Oh, look, I, I think it's a fascinating result. And, of course, it was eclipsed by Virgin Blue, which actually made more money with one-third the uh, capacity in its uh, comparable half-year. So we are seeing a lot of changes, and um, Qantas got itself into trouble with the analysts because it uh, didn't perform as well as they had expected, and then it just changed the metric. It started to emphasise underlying profit, which caused further problems. So, yes, we are seeing... Uh, uh, when you examine the results, and I'm looking at the comparison on the screen now, we're seeing their low-cost uh, operations uh, devour the uh, profitable activity of the rest of the group. One of the key problems that I found with with Qantas, uh, it's you know the, the numbers that were put out the, the, a few days ago, was the fact that it's not just that it was losing traffic and business to Jetstar. It's the fact that actually Jetstar's yield was down over 10% as well. Uh, so clearly, you know, Jetstar, for for all its uh, you know intents and purposes, has possibly saved Qantas from actually uh, hemorrhaging more money. It too is now feeling the pressure and pinch from uh, Virgin Blue. And if you compare the, the 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 three the three operators out of all of those, uh, you know, Virgin Blue's commitment to you know replacing and expanding its 737 operation is testament to the fact that it is actually positioned in the marketplace a hell of a lot better than Jetstar and Qantas is. And you now look at Qantas trading yield for lower tourist traffic, you know, and they've got the worst airplane for for that job in the A380. Uh, you know, th- that is actually a bigger headache, and that's coming to haunt them now. We'll probably see Virgin Blue expanded 737 order commitments to uh, offset the the fleet that's coming out from lease and and use uh, additional frames for expansion and also uh, possibly place extra 777 orders uh, to supplant V Australia's growth to eat into the uh, premium economy sector that uh, Qantas is not really doing that very well on. I'd agree with that. In fact, the charges on the money, uh, I, I would uh, bet uh, my uh, whatever... I know you guys have more local knowledge than I have, and I'm looking at it from a from an outsider's perspective. But when you when you look at uh, the way Qantas has been operating the last two years and uh, the pressure it's actually faced in the last 18 months, thanks to V Australia, uh, you know the, the the fact that it's positioned its premium product so poorly in contrast to the way it's got Jetstar at the lower end of its operation, its own economy and domestic operation, then Virgin Blue as well. They they just seem to have added it in for the same of adding it in and not done anything to improve the product and uh, V Australia's come in and uh, t- taken a leap and a watch out of their page. I'd, uh, I'd go further actually uh, in, in agreement. Uh, the uh, 360 odd seat uh, configuration of the uh, 777-300ER, the V Australia, is very brilliantly pitched at what the market needs. The 450 seat configuration in the uh, A380s that uh, Qantas have got at the moment isn't and they have admitted that. Uh, those uh, A380s will become uh, 490-seat A380s, and the uh, remaining eight, uh, when they're delivered, will become uh, 550-seat A380s. And I had some feedback from people I do know very well in Virgin Blue saying that once Qantas gets to that uh, 550-seat configuration, they do lose their cost advantage uh, and their commercial advantage uh, with the uh, 777. But that's not going to happen for some years. And who knows what will have happened uh, in the meantime with Virgin Blue. Uh, Virgin Blue has speculated uh, with uh, journalists uh, only in the last day that it looks like it may actually have to acquire a wide-body type simply to deal with the transcontinental and eventually deal with the problems of of capacity at Sydney Airport. Because 5% growth uh, over the next five years puts extraordinary pressure on slots out of Sydney. Yeah, that is that is a big constraint here in Australia. Is is what's available? I mean, unlike in the states where they just add more aircraft and to heck with it. And it seems that they they have more more aircraft arriving at an airport than it can handle, even in VFR conditions. Here we've got 
yeah, here we've got Sydney that's really putting the screws on everything and one little hiccup at Sydney blows the whole country out. So uh, it's, it's definitely, there, there is the concept, I mean, we've seen 747s being used to take people between Melbourne and Sydney before they go international. Would it be possible to, would anyone actually see something like an A380 doing Melbourne-Sydney? I'd see that from 2020, 2024 onwards, yes. I've got no doubt about that. It'll have about 750 seats. Uh, it'll board in the same time. I'm very impressed with the ease of boarding uh, A380s uh, on the flights I've done, uh, where the airport's appropriately uh, equipped. Uh, look, I think it's inevitable. I think we have to get our head around this. It's very hard. But look, I grew up uh, when uh, the 40-seat Vickers Viscount was, <laughs> was according to the uh, dominant uh, wisdom of the time, the absolute limit uh, yep. in capacity that was ever going to be needed in Australia. And times have changed and times will continue to change. Yep. Grant's often speculated, uh, particularly recently, about the prospect of perhaps a uh, Jetstar-branded A380. Guys, uh, what's your opinion on that, that idea? I was going to say, I'm not, I'm not so sure that that would even, uh, you know, entertain Jetstar's, uh, you know, uh, business model. Uh, as much as they w- would want to operate something between two key hubs in terms of volume, uh, the one thing that underpins the success of every low-cost carrier, that certainly the ones that I've looked at in the Middle East, Europe and North America and, and even Brazil, is frequency. And, and without frequency, you know, passengers want choice. And, and this is where they've stolen a march on legs legacy carriers. I'm, I'm just not sure that, uh, you know, something that big. Uh, personally, I think the A330 is, is too much airplane for, uh, for for Jetstar. You know, it's a, a how would they make the A380 work? Uh, you know, you've, you've already seen outright rejection by the Japanese carriers for going larger uh, on their sub 60 minute flights within Japan. You know, they're, they're going to operate 787s between the key points within the country, uh, still sticking with 767s and even down gauging to triple sevens. There hasn't been that studious move to a to a bigger airplane and so when you try to kind of extrapolate that into Australia where you've got a bigger landmass and uh, the network that uh, Jetstar obviously has would they want to sacrifice frequency for a handful of um, you know high capacity flights Uh, I just don't see that I I just don't see the rationale especially when you look at fuel cost being the primary driver behind uh, low cost carriers uh, successes I, I just couldn't see that working I quite agree with Sarge in uh, in terms of domestic. I think though that uh, when we look at the future, Jetstar will be flying to Europe. That will be flying 380s uh, or indeed yeah. uh, something else. Uh, you'll get this disconnect in that uh, the 380 and or its competitors will be the uh, the predominant technology over long haul uh, uh, routes from Australia, where there are, are slot limitations and. Uh, half-hourly departures aren't needed, but certainly Sarge is absolutely right. Within Australia, I would predict that by about uh, 2020, the dominant vehicle uh, will be the 737-900VR and the A321, and we'll all be talking about uh, their successes from both manufacturers will by about the middle of the next decade now, because they keep pushing it back, uh, have their all-new replacements, and we see a hint of what's to come in that all-new replacement, that they are talking about a 20% per unit uh, Mm. size in the run. So we're going to see go from being you know 140 up to a 200 seat range family. We're going to see the replacement family probably kicking in around about where the 737-800 is and going up to something which will, would have competed with the 757. That's pretty long and stretchy. Oh yes, and it won't be long and stretchy. They're both talking about quasi-wide body. They're both sort of talking about the London Tube uh, model where you have an extra set of big doors in the middle of the fuselage and you have unique geometry to it, load and unload because the, the dominant factor for them in, in economic design will be rapid turnabout. Uh, and that was, of course, the killer 
in Australia with the 757. It never got mm. traction in Australia because, you know, loading, they, they want to do 16, 16 flights a day, uh, sorry, eight flights a day per unit between Sydney and Melbourne. You weren't going to do that with a uh, 757. It took too long to unload. I remember sitting in one yeah. back in the pilot strike days when they had a few 757s on and you just, if, you'd just be sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting as people went past. <laughs> right, so that was the Aero Maritime uh, 757, as I, as I recollect. Yeah. Now, I remember the pilot strike. Uh, that was a plane spotter's uh, Nirvana that back then. <laughs> it was truly amazing, and the lucky ones got the uh, got the Royal Brunei. Um, um, I forget what it was actually, but it did have gold-plated taps <laughs> in the bathroom. Oh, it was my. incredible. The yeah. scariest ones that came down to Melbourne here, I was out there. I remember standing out at the end of runway, uh, I guess it was 1-6 at Melbourne one day, watching this Russian uh, airliner of some description come in, and it was noisy and it was coming in real fast. I'm <laughs> thinking this is <laughs> – they must do things different in Russia. <laughs> okay, so it looks like what we're going to see looking putting the future caps on is a, yeah, potentially a JQ um, A380 but on long haul. And that, that was where I was joking was that's that's when we know that JQ has taken over QF is, is when you see a uh, JQ branded A380 doing um, the Pacific run. Interesting, the the 900ER and, and beyond and the A321, just purely the, the aircraft of choice for domestic, because that, that's pretty much already where we're at. It's Aside from the E-Jets, it's primarily the, um, the A320 and the 737 that you see when you're down at waiting at Tuller or at Sydney um, and the domestic runs. I, th- I think what you'll find now with uh, the A320 and 737 in particular is that uh, there's going to be a lot of hesitance going forward within the next 12 months, particularly as the uh, pace of talks about re-engineing, you know, keep rearing their head. You know, we're only about 15 or 16 weeks away from uh, Farnborough Air Show. Uh, you know, Airbus have already said that they want to have something in place by then. So, you know, the, the, the pressure to either to commit to the existing product lineup or perhaps sit on the sidelines for a few more years and wait for something that's going to yield potential. 10 or 15 fuel percent benefit uh, is going to be something that you know airlines are going to be looking at very you know judiciously and I think in particular with the geographical area that they're in uh, it's almost akin to you know the, the five or six hour transcon flights that uh, that are present in the in the US so you know there's always scope for um, the likes of Tiger and Virgin Blue to keep looking at the narrow bodies as their predominant workhorses uh, and to eat away at the you know the the market dominance that uh, Qantas has had which seems to be very very easily eroding and and the numbers this this week from those two carriers just show that there is a lot of fragility in that marketplace well that's that's why the Qantas group put Jetstar on the um, the famous Tuller to Sydney run I mean Jetstar was always doing Avalon to Sydney but uh, once Tiger came in on Tuller to Sydney miraculously so did Jetstar yeah, and, and I think this is what will happen with you know some of Qantas's routes coming into Europe as well, where where you know the, the possibility of a JQ branded A380 would probably appear in a coach area, if nothing else, to uh, in the odd fringe market like uh, you know Frankfurt or, or or Paris, where Qantas has been you know so far averse to serving uh, as uh, predominantly like uh, you know Air France and other carriers would wouldn't want to use from their hubs. So there's always an argument there that. Uh, you know, Jetstar can possibly eat into uh, other markets where the carriers may not see them as a threat, but yet, you know, make significant inroads. And that would work really well. They don't have the uh, overhead cost of operating the A380 and still use the transfer traffic through their co-chair. I think, in fact, uh, that's pretty spot on because uh, the thing that's damaging Qantas most 
on the long haul to Europe is the time savings that other alternate hubs do. Uh, Qantas is still addicted to uh, to Frankfurt and particularly London. And look, quite frankly, the Middle East carriers, uh, Thai International and Singapore Airlines, kill them stone dead in, in flight times uh, mm-hmm. because they go directly to places like Glasgow and Hamburg and Vienna, which don't involve half a day of uh, purgatory um, <laughs> at Heathrow Airport or if you're being very, very bad, going from Heathrow to Gatwick. I think anywhere in London is purgatory. That It should actually be renamed purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> an interesting an interesting thing to to look at there, and, and I don't know what the figures would be, just, just talking about that though, Ben, would be what percentage of London-bound passengers would be going further on from London, significantly further on, say, back into but, Europe? Is, is, it a, is it a big percentage? Uh, that's a very good question because Qantas have gone very silent on that. Uh, up <laughs> to about uh, five years ago, they would say that something like 47 or 49% of their passengers were actually going somewhere beyond London but that did include you know to the Midlands or whatever and they don't talk about that anymore at all uh, and in fact it's quite possible that in the in the various purges in administration and uh, the middle levels they may well have got rid of the people who are doing that sort of analysis. I think this is a big problem for the carriers at the moment. I think uh, that sometimes they have lost the people who are actually giving them pretty good market analysis. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is you mentioned about, you know, uh, uh, traffic filtering through outside of London, uh, but predominantly where you have the three big carriers from the Middle East, Qatar, Etihad and Emirates, you probably find that you, they actually deliver more transfer traffic outside of London, even though their key uh, European hub is at Heathrow, uh, rather than, you know, the actual termination of flight being at Heathrow. Um, that's and that's why they, and that's why you know places like uh, Manchester and Glasgow uh, and even Birmingham are, are really now appealing to Etihad and Emirates because they know that they're flying to these secondary uncongested airports that have the capacity you know uh, the UK is a small country you know we're only 350 miles from north to south you know you can get from one end to the other in in, in around about 4 or 5 hours time if if you plan it correctly uh, <laughs> rather than being stuck within the confines of uh, purgatory stroke london you know you, you can get to another secondary airport and, and get anywhere within the UK, you, you know, you're only, uh, if, you, if you land in Manchester, for example, you're only, you know, an hour and a half away from Scotland. You land somewhere in Birmingham, you're about 90 minutes away from all of Wales. Uh, and, and the same with uh, Gatwick, you know, you're only about two hours away from the southwest of England. So so that from a connectivity point of view, those three Arab carriers have made uh, a real uh, hub and spoke connection uh, for, for its operations within the UK. They have indeed, and look, uh, I do know that the, the biggest airline uh, between Germany and Australia, for example, is Emirates and has been for some time. Uh, the biggest airline between Australia and France is Emirates. The reason Emirates will, within five years' time, have uh, have tripled A380s flying at very good load factors from Sydney to Dubai is that they distribute the, those loads at Dubai into their uh, A3 3200s and their 777s to other points. They have a very clever strategy in place, there's no doubt about it. And uh, so far Qantas hasn't come up with a convincing answer and it needs an answer. Its market share uh, between Australia and the rest of the world has fallen well below 30%. I mean, I did an article a few days ago about uh, the, the Australian government uh, signing up an air accord with Turkey and mm-hmm. it, it just reinforces my belief that the Australian government is making a tactical error by agreeing these accords because so far Qantas has been very, very adamant that it doesn't want to serve the Middle East. Uh, you know, a, a code share with Etihad in Abu Dhabi doesn't qualify. And the fact that you have Etihad now expanding into Australia means that something somewhere 
has to give. Now, unless the Australian government now reciprocally asks the UAE, you know, give us connectivity, transfer traffic and passage rights through to Europe, through your hubs. Otherwise, we're not going to agree to what you want. You know, that's the only way that Qantas is going to be able to compete. I mean, putting aside the issues of ownership and subsidies that those three big Arab carriers have, you know, from a competitive point of view, if you have the likes of those carriers coming in from Abu Dhabi, Dubai and Doha into your three, four big key cities into, you know, Australia, you can't then have Qantas complaining about their capacity dumping if you're not going to take up the opportunity to use those accords that you've agreed to and look for transfer traffic through the Middle East into Europe. Capacity is there. You know, they've got more capacity than airplanes in the Middle East. And that's why that region, you know, is systematically soaking up capacity, ordering nothing but wide bodies for the next 10 or 15 years. And Qantas is missing out. Uh, and, and it's quite a, a, a dumb move in a way by agreeing deals that you're not going to make uh, use of. So, you know, either they've got to quit complaining or they've got to start capping these route availability that they're given to these Arab carriers and start competing and demanding bypass routes from the Middle East into Europe. Otherwise, you know, people are just going to keep keep moving away from, uh, you know, Qantas through its hubs in Singapore or Sydney, Bangkok. I mean, we've already seen BA drop one of its flights to, to Sydney through Bangkok already. Uh, and, and this trend will continue. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the 777 stays on our Sydney routes for, for some time to come while premium traffic is still in the doldrums. The big problem, though, I think, uh, for Qantas is that the government doesn't care uh, in Australia. The thing about uh, like trade negotiations in Australia is the bigger picture. So when the government negotiates uh, things like this with uh, with the um, with Turkey or wherever. They are considering broader trade. Australia makes far more money out of uh, resources trading and services trading and other things than it does out of air travel. And so it's never a consideration in Canberra, and this has to be understood. The only solution for Qantas is to actually compete directly with these people or indeed form a commercial alliance. They will get no assistance no assistance whatsoever from the Australian government. <clears throat> the Australian government will pay token token attention to things like uh, the V Australia's very strong campaign to uh, keep Singapore Airlines off the Pacific so they could establish themselves. But uh, I think it'd be uh, a pretty strong bet that by 2015 or so, Singapore Airlines, if it so wishes, uh, will be able to uh, fly between Australia and, and the rest of the world. Australia has a very liberal view of aviation because at the end of the day, uh, that delivers far more benefits uh, to the national economy than it subtracts from the operations of Australian carriers. I mean, I was just looking at one of the press releases that came out yesterday from Japan Airlines. You know, they're, they're starting to co-chair with Emirates now. And I think it would be worthwhile, at least from a competitive point of view, given, you know, the background that Ben's just provided there, if if uh, Emirates, you know, were to be not necessarily enticed or induced, but to be brought on board Qantas's competitive efforts, uh, giving them greater access to Australia and, and at the same time allowing Qantas to better compete uh, with uh, Etihad, because let, let's not forget, by the time all of these wide bodies are delivered, Etihad will have at least a 25% bigger fleet than will Emirates. Uh, so, you know, that there's a lot of airplanes out there on order and Qantas needs to realize that, you know, all the Arab carriers are interested in right now is uh, capacity. They, they can offset, uh, you know, uh, yield erosion through volume. Uh, no other legacy carrier that I know of can do that, uh, purely because they don't have the airplane numbers to do that. With. So, you know, so it's, so it's an interesting prospect for, for Qantas to sit on the sidelines and complain, but that's not a position it, it can maintain for an indefinite period. I, 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 would, I would say that Qantas has actually taken the decision, and I think it uh, went uh, back to Jeff Dixon prior to Alan Joyce, that it will sacrifice the legacy model and the and the legacy costs. Uh, it will get Jetstar or Jetstar conditions to do these things. It will base a lot of its uh, activity offshore, probably in Singapore, perhaps uh, somewhere else. And that uh, that decision has been made. 
and it's it's made in the historic calculation that legacy practices are in fact stone dead. The 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 heart is shut down. The circulation is now failing, and uh, the corpse so uh, will start to cool. It's a very brutal assessment, but that's where it's headed, uh, and I think we will see low cost quality product offerings uh, uh, emerge, um, as we see with, with the, the Australia, for example, and the world will not even be remotely recognisable in airline management and models by about 2020. Yeah, well, uh, well, I think already this week, we, you know, I can probably count at least four carriers on, you know, on my hands who have dropped first-class products this week. Uh, yeah. You know, so the, the, the trend is actually already happening, and um, as much as Air New Zealand was mocked when it dropped uh, first-class, they, they've actually, you know, set a precedent now, and I think a lot of full-service carriers are recognising that first-class may not be abolished in its present form altogether, it may still exist for certain uh, routes uh, where demand is still ever present, you know, such as this uh, Sydney LA route that uh, Qantas is operating on. Uh, and, and we've already seen BA, uh, in my opinion, stupidly wasting 100 million pounds on investing in first class for, for returns that it may never see over the next four or five years. But in, in terms of uh, what, just to reinforce what Ben's saying, you know, the, the, the transitional phase of change has already happened, you know, and, and I think low cost carriers will be the benchmark as opposed to legacy carriers and legacy carriers are now playing catch up and, and this this is going to be a vicious circle for them because it's never been done successfully using wide body airplanes uh, unless you're you uh, uh, an air asia rex or a v australia starting out from a clean sheet of paper it's just not going to work i wish but, i could tell you who it was i was with um and there were several other aviation journalists and it was all in club we were traveling around the perimeter of sydney airport and we went past the uh, the executive jet uh, area there and there were all these lovely multicolored anonymous um uh, global expresses and the like <laughs> and this executive said that is where our first class has gone yep Frank Lowy's Global Expresses probably carry more first-class passengers across the Pacific than Qantas does, and and that would be have been true for the, for the number of years now. It was starting um, before 9/11. Absolutely, uh, and these are people who travel. The plane travels when they want to travel, basically. Mm -hmm. Although that's a slight problem in Sydney, um, <laughs> and uh, and they arrive at a very nice little tiny airport you see just uh, just to the north, from memory of LAX, uh, where basically security doesn't exist. Uh, the border formality is good day, oh, no, well, good morning, or hello, mm. is that, and uh, is that and, uh, you know they save hours at each end of the trip, and they don't really care if they have to refuel at Honolulu. Lulu on the way, and of course, if the GC 650 performs as expected, they won't have to refuel at uh, Honolulu at all. They'll simply go non-stop yep. and they'll do it at a higher Mac number. So that is why first class is disappearing, uh, among other reasons, apart from the cost and the, the fact that corporate uh, tastes have changed. And that is why the growth of premium economy is so important in the market now, because a lot of corporates, um, the most powerful cost cutter in a lot of corporations is the travel management person, and they're telling people, get used to it, you're going to fly in economy, but if premium's economy available we might put you there yeah well let's let's face it with all the changes that have gone on business class now is like first class was five or ten years ago premium economy is pretty close to business now and in fact most of the airlines started their premium economy with old business class seats so and what chance does Qantas have in competing on first class when you've got Emirates and Singapore blowing them out of the water with their quality of service? Mm. 
And you know, if Qantas really needs the only people who are flying first class in Qantas are the diehard Aussie Qantas is still Australian kind of people. Really, if you, if you're looking for pampering and service, you're going with with Emirates and Singapore. If you're looking for the ultimate of what first class is, as Ben just said, there you're going with those um, business jets, which is, has been happening since early 2000s and beyond. And first class is dying for a variety of reasons that we've all just discussed here. So business uh, to get to business, I mean, how much opulence can a person stand? <laughs> I mean, it just it just goes to show that you know it, it, you you're only restricted by either your budget or your brains in in how much opulence you actually want. Uh, and and I think the, the the critical thing for for Qantas, particularly based on the you know their their appalling figures this week, is that it, uh, I was speaking to an analyst, uh, a local analyst uh, down at your end there uh, on a research note that he put out. Uh, I'd like to protect his identity for obvious reasons, but. Uh, the, the, the key thing that stuck out for me was that the notion that Qantas is now actually looking to increase uh, premium fares just flies in the face of everything that they're trying to achieve as a carrier, that they seem to be stuck between this um, phase of either, are we, you know, are we going to compete with our own Jetstar? Are we going to still keep this elite branding that we have? But at the same time, they want to cut back on first class and business and bump up economy, yet they want to stick up the prices of uh, premium traffic. Uh, so, you know, they're not seeming to make any cohesive decision making behind their strategy that this seems to be chopping and changing too often and too quickly and uh, you know for, for a long while that I've personally thought is that you know Jetstar has probably caused them more damage rather than the competition and the fact that they don't know how to deal with Jetstar is hampering their uh, ability to compete with you know the likes of Singapore Tiger Emirates Etihad Qatar and uh, they, they really don't know who it is or what it is they're actually competing against they, they, they seem to have lost direction and uh, personally I feel they were losing that that sense of direction uh, under under Dixon, yes, and, and, it just, and it just seems to have uh, f- f- uh, followed on since uh, Joyce has taken over. You sound like you're quoting some research that was done by Virgin Blue, actually. <laughs> Funnily enough, no. It, it, the, the, the same the same analyst who, who I'm uh, citing here uh, actually has a buy recommendation on Qantas opposed to Virgin Blue. So hmm. uh, I, I thought I'd better put that out wow. there for equal sake. Well, <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is that Virgin now is the largest. Jet, domestic jet carrier in Australia by destination, certainly not by capacity. And they're the only carrier in Australia that has a premium option on every flight that goes to everywhere. Uh, and they will be moving to a, a triple option. You'll have a very tight fit uh, economy light or whatever they call it. Ultra economy is another word I've heard. Then there'll be a very spacious full economy, but uh, pitched at about $100 below whatever it is Qantas is charging. And then there'll be the premium economy, which I think a lot of people, including myself, have criticised, but uh, can clearly be improved. And apart from that, uh, I can't afford it. And um, (laughs) I I walked past it and, in fact, out of Canberra. I try to sit in row four of the E-Jets if my my fare class qualifies for that in the booking engine, because row four, the start of economy, has more legroom. Than the uh, than the three rows of premium economy at the front of the EJET, and I do love EJETs. There's a good tip for the listeners. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. A few people have referred to the uh, e-jets as uh, having so, quite a number of uh, mechanical maintenance issues, quite often going US and being delayed and all that kind of stuff. Is is that your experience so far? Uh, they, were, they were absolutely appalling on introduction. It was it was sort of uh, it was terrible. It was sort of like E stood for Edsel for anybody yeah. who can remember the, his, the, the, the history of uh, aviation. But you know they seem to have stuck with it, uh, and it does seem to have improved. And I know, for example, um, out of uh, Brisbane, uh, it's now very popular. 
popular going out of the Canberra to Brisbane. It's very popular. And so I think they're making it work. But yes, it, it, it was a jet that was never as reliable as the 737s or even, heaven forbid, the Q400s, which did have their own issues for a while with Qantas. And uh, look, a, a prominent uh, um, member of the opposition who I once shared an office with in the bulletin uh, ran into me the other day uh, in uh, in Canberra and uh, he's saying, where are you flying to? And I told him where I was flying and uh, he said, oh, I've got to fly a bloody turboprop and he really hated uh, it. Uh, and I think uh, this is what's winning Qantas people from who are rusted onto Qantas, uh, winning uh, Virgin Blue people who are ru- rusted onto Qantas. And that is once you've flown an e-jet and it does get there on time, um, <laughs> you're hooked. Yeah, that's the thing oh, yeah. with the jungle jets is it's allowed uh, Virgin to do some more uh, regional operations and really get into that Qantas link market. And so it's it's been a good strategy, I think. Yeah, it was painful at the start, uh, but certainly they they stuck to their guns. And look, you can imagine how different the picture would have been if Qantas had actually anticipated this and bought bought some uh, e-jets as well. I think I think Virgin would have had very little chance of getting the uh, getting the foothold in Canberra that it has now. Yeah, no, the, those e-jets have definitely given them a lot of help getting the foot in and uh, with the uh, federal government putting the uh, travel up for tender, I think it's given them a pretty good chance to uh, win a lot more. They're, they're talking about 20% increase in government tra- and travel, if I remember correctly. That's true, yeah. We'll, we'll, see. Yeah. we'll see the results in the next uh, few weeks, I believe. Now, gentlemen, we've been talking about the two major airlines here, of course, uh, the Virgin Group and the Qantas Group, but uh, of course our good friends at Tiger Airways have been in the news lately. Uh, let's have a bit of a chat about them. The Tiger accounts are quite confusing. They've only got $14 million Singapore in cash uh, at the end of the nine months, but uh, they have said in their uh, press statement uh, that uh, they, the last two quarters, that is the last two quarters of the nine months to December, have been profitable in Australia. Uh, hopefully at a press conference this afternoon we'll get some sort of indication as to what they mean by profitable in Australia, because they're still in the process of giving their stuff away for nothing, which, which we should all be grateful. Um, quite frankly, I, I wouldn't pay a huge amount for it anyhow. So yeah, Tiger's, uh, Tiger's results are fascinating <laughs> in that uh, when you look at the accounts, they have an immense amount of forward carriage in their balance sheet, and that appears to be being used to pay for current costs. So Tiger is fine as long as they keep expanding and they keep collecting any sort of fare. It doesn't matter whether it's a loss-making fare or a profitable fare. As long as they can keep collecting revenue, which is in excess of current daily requirements, they're fine. Isn't that but called a Ponzi not, scheme? Uh, well, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but look, uh, it's certainly um, a, a fascinating model. Uh, that's what I would call it. And it's a knife-edge model. And Robert Gottliebson and uh, Business Spectator made the observation that it depends on everything going absolutely mm-hmm. perfectly right. And yeah. he said, the trouble is that Qantas and Virgin Blue will do everything they can to make sure that everything goes wrong. Yep. I've always speculated with Tiger Airways, Ben, that they're spreading themselves too thin. They're, they're trying to, to make a, a reasonable size route network with a very, very small fleet, and I think this has a, a negative impact for them. What do you what do you think of that assessment? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, I was always amazed at their uh, route strategy at the outset. Uh, the only example of decent density and frequency we've seen so far is Melbourne to Sydney, which, of course, is, is where they aim aim their uh, their strategy at the gonads of the big one. And that's had the, uh, the side effect, then, of putting uh, Jetstar, not just head-on with Tiger, but head-on with City Flyer. Yeah. There's a lot of companies out there who say, hey, look, you, you've got to fly on best fare of the day. That's the new corporate mantra, yep. best fare of the day. And if there's a Jetstar plane leaving t- within 10 or minutes or half an hour of a City Flyer, and I just love those City Flyer 767s, they're a beautiful aircraft, but if there's one leaving within half an hour 
at three times the uh, fare, your backside is toast unless you follow the company corporate policy and you select the lowest fare available, which would probably be a Jetstar fare. Mm. So, so what Tiger has succeeded in doing, and maybe this is part of its strategy, is setting up really serious tension between Jetstar and uh, Qantas Cityflyer. Mm-hmm. And if we see that on Sydney, Melbourne now, we will see it very soon, of course, on uh, on the uh, Brisbane routes. I think they're starting up uh, Melbourne-Brisbane from recollection uh, fairly soon, or is it Sydney-Brisbane? I forget which. But we will see Tiger, assuming, you know, that the whole scheme doesn't collapse um, and, the, and the shareholders continue to stump up the, the dollars, we will see Tiger creating this dilemma for Qantas all across Australia, with Virgin, the Virgin is sitting on the sidelines saying, wow, guys, go for it, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I just wanted to step in, uh, you know, just just uh, looking at that whole equation that Ben's uh, summed up for us really nicely there is that you know Virgin has kind of taken a sideline to this uh, Tiger Jetstar Qantas uh, you know triumvirate uh, challenge there, and uh, you know actually taken the time to look at the marketplace and penetrate the customers that are being you know left aside by this uh, three-way battle that's going on and this is where they've actually reaped the benefit of being you know the, the biggest domestic player now and uh, I, I just don't think that they're going to want to sacrifice the uh, success that they've scored by taking everybody on they, they've got a successful recipe and just just concentrating on the market share that they've got not not really too worried about growing but the, the growth will come organically without them having to actually do anything while while the other three clowns are still fighting at each, at each other's throats, you know, you know, Virgin Blue is just going to be sitting there ready to take these passengers on board. That indeed is the strategy, and and, it's, and it certainly seems to be working for them. And you know, to to suddenly you know turn on the back of good earnings, you know, potential commitment to to up to fifty or sixty new airplanes uh, is 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 a real uh, endorsement of their belief that they can actually uh, siphon this traffic off from their competitors. Yes, I believe uh, the um, and and they're they're in the short term market by the way at the moment, looking for uh, short term leases uh, for seven three seven. I believe that they will uh, use twenty eight of the uh, of the potential fifty order to replace. Uh, aircraft coming off lease that's been on that's on the public record in in the uh, near term in the next two years uh, from the end of this year and then we have to ask ourselves what happens with the other 22 and I think that is a damn good question and uh, I think that's where they see their opportunity and I think we will see much fewer of the 737 uh, 700s and uh, we'll see predominantly 800s with an overlay of 900s at the top and I think the 900s will be used particularly on the longer routes and may even end up on the uh, with the as the uh, Polynesian blue jet as well. The interesting things. So sorry to interrupt. But one yeah. of the interesting things about the uh, the seven three seven order that they have in particular is that I'm I'm pretty sure that they will have the option to switch their remaining out year orders from 2015 to 2017 to any re engine 737 that's going to be out there. Obviously, the economics will scale up better for the 800 and 900 compared to the to the 700. Uh, but 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 even so, the, the fact that they've actually talked about their delivery schedule from 2011 out to 2017 uh, and beyond gives you some kind of indication that they're not really going to be aggressively expanding like uh, Ryanair are, for example, who are taking several 737s each month. So they've taken the you know the time to study the marketplace and how they want to a replace their older 737s that are coming off lease and at the same time put a corresponding percentage growth for expansion but without killing yields by throwing up too much capacity onto the system. I think that's true. Now, I have noticed an interesting subtext, by the way, in both uh, Virgin Blue and Qantas about the re-engineering of uh, narrow bodies. There is a lot of skeptics 
scepticism there about the immediate benefit because what people are telling me is that we need high cycle reliability. It's all very well to have a great new design, uh, which they're very interested in, which is cleaner and a lot leaner, but it has to be able to do those eight takeoff and landings. It has to be able to do long taxi runs. It has to be every bit as reliable as the bomb-proof, uh, essentially, alternatives that uh, you have on the 320 and also the uh, the engine that we have on the uh, on the uh, 737, which I always annoy my American friends by describing as a as an American Franco-American uh, enterprise. That really that really cheapens them off. Um, uh, but the fact of the matter is that engine has to be super reliable, and this is this is one of the things about uh, the ultimate use of the 787 by Qantas or indeed Jetstar on sort of city flyer routes. It'll be a fabulous aircraft, but the engine that is efficient flying eight or nine hours uh, with one landing or takeoff a day or maybe two is a different thing from the engine that will be efficient for doing that eight times a day between close city pairs. So there's a huge emphasis on the reliability being established by the new engine technology. Yeah, I, I would just reinforce uh, you know, Ben's comment to that. And when you look at uh, predominantly Airbus's studies and experiments and testing that they've done on the Pratt & Whitney GTF, they're not convinced that that engine is what Pratt & Whitney says it can do. Uh, for, from my own uh, intelligence and uh, research that I've done into the, the Pratt & Whitney uh, GTF engine, there is still a lot of unanswered questions about how they're even going to ascertain a 15% fuel burn reduction, let alone 20 If you have a look at the press release today for the Republic uh, Holdings C-Series order, you'll notice that they put in parameters to say that they've estimated 20% fuel burn on a 500 nautical mile stage length, which doesn't represent any low-cost carrier that I can think of anywhere on this planet, let alone passenger or cargo uh, numbers being thrown into that equation. And then you also look at the fact that uh, Boeing is very reluctant to put two engine options onto the 737. They've got a successful formula that's worked for almost 30 years with the 737 Classic and now with the next generation with just the CFM engine. And as I posted on the editorial just over a week ago that they will go with the Leapax as a sole source engine. Uh, there's no reason for them to rock the boat. The, the, the CFM engine is the incumbent on the 737 and it's as dominant as the GE engine is on the 777 uh, that we see now. And I think Airbus is probably going to have a big headache wondering how it's going to justify putting on the GTF, uh, not particularly because of the engine reliability, but the fact that its performance will be hindering the whole A320 family because it's almost four or 5,000 pounds lower in thrust and the GTF core physically cannot be grown unless uh, a new clean, clean sheet design of the core is actually taken up. And everybody knows that when you're looking about a one or $2 billion investment on a new engine, the core is the thing that costs the most money. And uh, Pratt just doesn't simply have that money to invest in an upscaled GTF to uh, power heavyweight or uh, short fuel performance A320s. And that's why in uh, China and uh, Latin America, uh, the 737 has won notable and sizable orders for its short fuel performance packages that the A320 just doesn't have. And, uh, you know, the, the, as much as we can argue all day about the pros and cons about the A320 and 737, when, when it comes to uh, specific missions like this, perhaps the 737 does have an edge over the A320. Obviously, this will be uh, decreased when the winglets are introduced from 2012, but uh, Airbus probably has more of a headache in uh, determining an engine solution for it. Uh, A320 family rather than Boeing and its 
737. But again, you know, as, as Ben rightly points out, uh, reliability and online, uh, sorry, on-wing lifetime is going to be absolutely critical to any decision making before anybody commits to any uh, re-engine airplane. True. I mean, uh, and in fact, I've, I've detected that uh, those concerns uh, in Airbus and John Lay's uh, presentation here in November, which is fascinating for a number of reasons, uh, you know, and did raise some doubts in my mind as to um, as to how they will ultimately apply thin laminated uh, composites to load-bearing sections of the 350. Um, he was quite candid about that, and so was Botti, the uh, technology uh, guru at Airbus. Uh, the, the general comment was that in general, um, unfortunately, at this stage, that sort of use of composites has not delivered the weight savings predicted. Mm-hmm. So we are going to see some changes. Uh, I'm not suggesting for a minute we'll see a metal um, 350 or anything like that, but we are going to see some changes in the way composite technology is applied to the 350 from what we've been told now. And I would strongly suggest we will see some significant, how shall I put it, enhancements or improvements, read changes uh, happen in the Boeing uh, program as it matures as well. I think one of the key things that Airbus has probably struggled with more than anything else is not necessarily the materials, it's uh, the application because obviously we know that Boeing has the patent on the uh, monolithic fuselage structure of the 787 and uh, I'm sure that if that wasn't the case then uh, we probably wouldn't be hearing about uh, potential A350 troubles this early on. Okay, guys, well, it's a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we could go on for hours, but we probably ought to give it a bit of a wrap-up here. Uh, Sarge, Fleet Buzz Editorial, what's the latest article you've got on there just before we wrap up? Uh, it's just uh, the, the latest article I've done is uh, the, the death of the premium market, which actually works pretty well with yeah, what we talked about today. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and, folks, that's at uh, fleetbuzzeditorial.com. Sarge, uh, the Twitter address again? Is at fleetbuzz. At Fleet Buzz, nice and easy, folks. Uh, ben Sandylands, your blog is Plain Talking. Uh, plain Talking, Plain Talking, correct. Just just Google two words, Plain, P-L-A-N-E, Talking, or attentively Google that rude guy in Australia. Okay, and that's <laughs> uh, that's a really fantastic uh, website to look at, folks. So regular listeners to this show would know that we reference this website quite often. So uh, we thought it was uh, high time we had Ben on before uh, you know we plagiarised too much more of his work. <laughs> oh, before he dies. Before Ben comes hunting us going, hey. <laughs> not a problem, not a problem. Okay. Thanks very much, guys. Ben Sandyland, Sarge Ahmed. Let's talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks very much, and Pleasure meeting you, Ben. All the best, guys, and same to you, Sarge. It will be fun. Ciao. Thanks, Take guys. Care. Bye-bye. Experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of the 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. G'day, this is Owens Up. Join me in May 2010 as I trek around Australia in a Jabiru 230 to celebrate the centenary of powered flight down under and in the process raise vital funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Check out my website and follow my progress at www.thereandback.com.au. In the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy the in-flight service with Grant and Steve on Playing Crazy Down Under.
Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.plaincrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. And welcome back, folks. Malaria, it's a nasty and potentially fatal disease. According to the World Health Organization, around 3.3 billion people, roughly half the world's population, are at risk. Each year, this leads to around 250 million cases, resulting in over 1 million deaths. Now, living in developed nations such as Australia and New Zealand, we're fortunate to be largely rid of this disease, but in poorer parts of the world, malaria remains a major concern. In light of this, two Australian pilots are about to depart on an around-the-world adventure in a Gippsland Aeronautics Air Van. Ken Evers and Tim Price aim to use this flight to raise awareness of malaria and raise vital funds for research efforts into controlling the disease. We took the opportunity recently to have a chat with the guys about their aims for the flight, along with some of the more technical aspects of the endeavour. Joining us on the line now is uh, Tim Price and Ken Evers. G'day, guys. G'day, mate. How you going? All right. So uh, we're going to have a talk tonight, guys, about the Millions Against Malaria uh, flight that you're doing. You're uh, getting ready to do a flight around the world in a uh, an aircraft that's, uh, I guess, not really designed for the purpose. <laughs> it should be a, a, gr- a great adventure. No, it's not exactly designed for the purpose, but in a sense, since we've been working with it, I've, I've got to the point now I think it's uh, you couldn't fly it in a better aircraft. Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, it is. It's it's like. We, we've been talking with Owen Zupp and he's taking an Australian aircraft around Australia and now you're taking an yes. Australian aircraft around the world, which is great. That's which, fantastic. I've emailed him and he's a top bloke. He's a really good yeah. bloke. I know, he's really good. We have a lot of fun chatting with Owen. We've had him on yeah. a few times. Well, do you want to tell us, first of all, uh, what's what's the mission? What's the purpose going down here? In essence, it's kind of two things, really. It's, the first thing is that um, my, my heart is, is really with malaria. Um, I grew up as a teenager in Papua New Guinea and... Um, as the only white kid in school, uh, I had the unique, I suppose the word unique, privilege, I suppose, to see life from almost through their eyes um, because all my mates, you know, there were nationals there yep. and seeing the issues that they had with malaria, uh, you know, they'd, they'd die from it, they'd, you know, all sorts of horrific things that they would suffer through it. And then um, as I got older, I did a bit of translating work for my dad in his factory and, and the issues that malaria caused, caused the people in his factory. And so growing up and leaving, like living in New Guinea, I always wanted to do something about malaria. But my, my trade isn't, isn't been in the meat industry all my life. And, and there's not a lot a meat worker can do about malaria. But, um, but I, I haven't get my, I got my pilot's license up in New Guinea. And then, um, and then I moved on into, um, got my commercial license a couple of years ago. And, and I thought maybe perhaps I could use, aviation as a tool to raise awareness about malaria and, and Tim and I were in a meeting and we, we had the idea and thought well you know why don't we why don't we uh, fly around the world and, and fly specifically to malaria endemic countries to help people realize just how horrific malaria really is and then I mean in, in a sense you know it, it's it's really incredible really because with 2010 being the centenary of aviation so well, we could actually use an amazing aviation tool by uh, commemorating the centenary of Australian aviation by flying the first Australian-designed and manufactured aircraft around the world, which is the Airvan. Um, mm-hmm. So, so it, it's it's two. I mean, the synergies really between those two things are fantastic because, yeah, and I'm, I know I'm talking to the converted here, but um, 
Australian aviation is not really appreciated within Australia. And, and if we can step up to the plate and go, hey, look, look at how awesome Australian aviation is. Look at what Australians have done. Look what they can do. Look at this plane. You know, I mean, the air van, in, in a sense, you know, the, the, its role, if you really get into it, its role is in malaria work. You know, in, in so many countries where it's used, it's transporting people that are sick with malaria to hospitals. You know, and it's just... You know, you take the eight the seats out of the back, and you can put a thousand litre ferry tank in it and fly it around the world. So, <laughs> um, that, they're the two the two the two main goals. And and, and my, my heart is this is that two, is that number one is that once the flight's finished, you know, I don't care if they never even know who Ken Evers and Tim Price. Are. I mean, I'd, I'd be disappointed in the sense if they did. But if they if they know that hey, malaria is killing a child every thirty seconds, some kid dies from malaria. And secondly, if we can show the world that what us Aussies can do in the world of aviation and look at this amazing machine, the AirVan, you know, with the performance characteristics of that aircraft and, and, and show them that we can mix it with the best of them. Um, yeah, I think, I think we're onto something. Yeah, sounds great. That was my brief statement. <laughs> <laughs> that, was good. that was a pretty good summary of it there, uh, <laughs> especially given, like, the, the AirVan is used a lot in various uh, mission, mission uh, aviation scenarios. I, uh, some episodes back uh, last year, I was at the uh, Coldstream uh, air show that um, M- Mission Aviation Fellowship put on yeah. and inter- interviewed uh, Dr. Bruce Searle, and he was talking about the GA-8 and how good, how good that had been and also briefly touched on the Kodiak. But, uh, yeah, no, taking the, um, the GA-8 around, it's, as you said, it's an Australian aircraft and it's used in mission flying, and here it is going around raising awareness about a lot of the uh, aspects that mission flying is all about, bring, mm-hmm. getting people a better life. And you probably noted that we, one of the charities we're supporting um, is Mission Aviation Fellowship. Yep. So. Excellent. And they do fantastic work. Um, Tim, what about yourself? What's your background in aviation? Um, well, I uh, got a pilot's licence before Ken was born, so um, <laughs> makes me a couple of years older. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, Dad had a, pilot, a private license, so uh, he taught me where to spend money as soon as I started earning some, and sort of went from there. And then I finally got a love for it, and uh, ended up getting a commercial and heading up to New Guinea and flew up there for a few years. Well, actually, I was in New Guinea at the same time Ken was, but we didn't know at the didn't hadn't met each other at the time, didn't know about it. I was mainly in the Highlands, and then in the Islands region over near Rabaul, out when the volcano went up in the 90s. Okay, and. Uh, yeah, and then came back here to put our kids back in school, and uh, they're all teenagers by then. And uh, that's sort of, and then so when I got back here, I went into building. Okay. So I could earn some money and not, um, you know, just play around with planes. <laughs> it does have so a you... way of siphoning money out of your pocket, uh, flying. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, you don't, uh, you don't get anywhere fly financially, really. No. no, no. I tried closing the cockpit on the last time I was flying, but the money still got siphoned out of my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, um, Tim actually sold himself a little short, I think, because he's. I asked him to join me on the flight. He's got three thousand hours in the, in the highlands of New Guinea, flying in some of the worst jungle strips I reckon in the world. So uh, he's an amazing pilot, and and flying with him, um, I always think I know how to fly until I fly with Tim, <laughs> and then I realise I haven't got a faintest idea of how to fly. So he's an extraordinarily accomplished pilot. So I, having him along the, yeah. on the flight is. Um, it, yeah, it, it really adds to the safety aspect of it. Yeah, the only problem is Ken puts me on a pedestal and there's only one way from there. <laughs> well, that begs, yeah. begs the question, guys. Who's going to rack up all the PIC time on this flight? 
Yeah, we'll just take it in turns on that. So. <laughs> Have you ever heard of any, many, miny, mo? Yeah, whoever's in the left-hand seat has control over whatever happens. <laughs> and, we, and when you see, and when you see the weather deteriorating, it's a mad rush yeah. to get out of the left seat. Exactly right. Exactly <laughs> yeah, right. Probably time to have a sleep in the back while the other guy will fly. So, well, let's have a bit of a talk about the flight. Now, having a look on your website here, and folks, the website is uh, millionsagainstmalaria.com. Uh, talking about the mission here, it says you plan to fly uh, 26,740 nautical miles in 230 hours of flight time and burn 13,980 litres of Avgas. So you've got it uh, planned out pretty well there. Uh, tell us a bit about the route. It doesn't. It's not actually as exact as it sounds on the website. <laughs> sounds pretty <laughs> impressive, I That's thought. what it looks like on paper. Yeah. But, you know, and naturally, once we get into it, um, all sorts of things can, can change. And, and we've been working with United Aviation Services with our flight route. So the flight the flight time's actually changed a bit. Um, I think there's about another five hours added to it just because of the different air routes. But basically yeah. what we're doing with the flight route is flying with, this, with the Pacific Crossing. Um, we've, we've had just... Incredible help, and, and and to be honest with you, it's been it's been humbling really, as as, as the caliber of people that have come alongside us to assist us, and one of them being Stephen Deese, um, the ferry pilot, oh, yeah. and yep. he's just been like I can't thank him enough, and he's just thrown heaps of paperwork at us and, and told us how he goes across the Pacific, and yep. and uh, in fact he's been a godsend really as far as getting fuel in some of those locations because. Yeah. Um, couldn't get fuel, and he said, "Oh, I'll ring this number." And clearly, he's got access to the black market of Avgas. Oh yeah, we've got, we've got fuel in, in in every area now, but Ghana. We've got a friend working on that. But uh, we're crossing the Pacific, going uh, Lord Howe, Norfolk, American Samoa, and then up to uh, Kiribati, then up to Hawaii, and then the really long leg from Hawaii into California, United States. That'll be about nineteen and a half hours. Yep. And then uh, crossing through the bottom of. Um, of your states, and then uh, down through Jamaica, Barbados, and into um, Macapá, Brazil. Now, in Macapá, Brazil, is where we, we're going to start doing some work as far as documenting the effects that malaria is causing in that particular area. Uh, massive malaria problems in that area, especially with the indigenous Indians there on the Amazon. Yep. And then uh, from from there, we head out to um, Natal, Brazil, and then the big crossing uh, over to uh, Ghana, Accra, Ghana, where <laughs> where hopefully we've got Abgas. <laughs> so. We've we've got about I don't know ten people now looking looking at getting us Avgas there and and quite I'm quietly confident that it's under control. Um, we've got Air Ghana now looking in, into flying some in for us, which is great. And then from um, Ghana going into Uganda, we will do some more malaria work, and down to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, and then up to the Seychelles, and across then up to Bangalore, India, where we'll spend a day or so with um, our major sponsor Mahindra. Uh, and yep. I've, I've got to take my hats off to those chaps. Um, they've really come on board. And without Mahindra, the, the flight couldn't occur. You know, they've really stepped up the plate. We've still got a lot of money to raise, but um, they've put in the lion's share by, by a long mile of, of the funds. So I'll spend a day or so with them. And then from there, we're going to Vietnam. And that's and that's really interesting, Stephen Grant, because there they've got a, a program where they've managed to work out how mosquitoes how to, how to stop mosquitoes from breeding. So, um, okay. And they can't get it very much publicity out, so I've lined the flight up to go through there so we can actually go and have a look at it, document it, and put it as part of our documentary. Yep. And then um, from there down to, I love this name, it's my favourite name of the whole flight, Zamboanga. <laughs> <laughs> my next daughter's going to be named that, Zamboanga. Um, <laughs> it's just a cool name. And from Zamboanga, Philippines. And then there um, we go to pretty much you know, Tim's and, and my heart, 
in New Guinea. Uh, we're going to WeWAC and then, and then we'll spend a week in New Guinea um, going to different locations there that have issues with malaria. Um, and, and in a sense, you know, it, it's, it's really a home really because you yep. speak the language, we know the people. We'll spend a week there. And, and, and the thing there is that it, that's our backyard. And if we, can, if we can highlight to Australians the issues that, you know, basically three hours from Cairns, these yeah. are facing with malaria. You know, I think we've really done the right thing. And then from there, um, we head through Cairns and then uh, then home again. So that that's the flight in a, a, 50, a 55 day flight in a two minute nutshell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's a that's a pretty intense flight. Uh, I'm I'm actually glad to hear that you got Steve on. Steve Deeth's uh, an amazing guy. Uh, last mm-hmm. I caught up with him, he was just about to take an aircraft up to Nepal. Um, yeah. I think it was an air van, from memory, but. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he he definitely has a lot of contacts as you're finding. So that's that's great to hear. Because uh, yeah. one one of the questions I was going to ask you was, um, how are you going with all the visas and the permits and all that kind of stuff? Who's looking after that? Okay, with the um, with the permits, Jefferson have been they've just been amazing. Richard Lowe, I can't. He's the uh, the I think the CEO of Jefferson Australia. Yep. He's just been incredible. He, he just you know you say something to him and bang, he he, he finds information out for you. Um, so he's looking after all our charts and maps and, and GPS data. But he said the best person to go for permits was um, United Aviation Services. Okay. And so we've contacted them and they're looking after, they're an amazing company, they're looking after our permits, uh, our flying permits and landing permits, accommodation, transport from the airport to the accommodation. Oh, wow. Uh, immigration. Um, the only thing that we have to do is organize the visas. And yep. um, so we've got those, I think we've got one left. But we've used VisaLink here in mm-hmm. Melbourne, and they're amazing. It's a little bit hard to understand. I think I think they thought I was a bit nutters when I told them what I was going to do. <laughs> so once they realised I was serious, and I really didn't, I really was going to fly around the world in a single engine aircraft. There's a chap by the name of Dave Tom. He came on board, and he you know, he took me seriously, and said, "I'll send it all down to us." And they've been great. You know, they've kept us posted and and uh, just done everything we needed to do and and so we're getting all the visas done and um yeah so but yeah united aviation service is just terrific and and then also i'm saying that uh, i've got to make mention of qbe um, yep. they've, they've been fantastic both on on the sponsoring side but also on the malaria side they're doing a big malaria program throughout all their branches okay. in the pacific um so they're supporting the flight but they're also um doing a heap of malaria awareness work and, and getting people to donate um, money to malaria charities in their regions so they've been very very good are all these people you like definitely mahindra is is a sponsor because mahindra now have a controlling interest in gippsland aeronautics so Correct, yep. they're, they're supplying the aircraft and and it sounds like they're doing more are, are the other folks like jefferson united aviation visa link qbe they're actually stepping in and donating services and so on to help out Basically, Mahindra's sponsorship covers the aircraft and the avionics. Yep. Um, and, and we still have to pay a higher rate for the aircraft, but, but extremely discounted. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the higher rate that we pay for the aircraft is physically the, the actual cost to run the aircraft. So, okay. Which is you know, a fraction of what it would be to normally hire one. Yep. Um, and then um, Jefferson have been, you know, they, they're sponsoring all the uh, charts, GPS yep. data, that's their service. United Aviation Services are doing all the organisation for us. So well, I've showed it to a couple of people, and they said that the price we're getting it at is a fraction of what the airlines get it at. So that's really good. Um, but to be quite frank, we've still, we've still got 160 grand to raise. Okay. We raised over a quarter of a million, but um, the flight cost four hundred thousand dollars. So we've got about 100 and 150 to go. So with three weeks to go, we're, we're sweating on it. Oh yeah. But, um, but I'm quietly confident. Like I think Tim and I have moved to 20-hour working days. But but um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's one of those things. How do I say this? 
for, for Australian aviation and being at the centenary of Australian aviation, I passionately feel that this flight must happen. We've, we've got to celebrate Australian aviation and, yep. and, and, and to utilise this platform um, to raise awareness. They're, they're just without trying to sound stupid, it's just no better time really to do it than the 100 years of flight. Yeah. Yep, and we should mention too that uh, the first leg of your flight, you're actually uh, departing from the uh, Digger's Rest, the uh, Houdini Centenary Air Show, which is uh, right. obviously there to mark the 100 years of flight. And uh, we're hoping that Owen's Up will be there for that too. Because um, Glenn Butchard, who's arranging that, he's done a terrific job. He has done an unbelievable job in getting everything organised there, and it's going to be one heck of an air show. Really oh, we'll be there. Well, yeah. I've, I've just seen the one word on the website there that's going to get me there, and, or the two words, and that's Chris Spirou, the master. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I need that's to know. I'll a be lot there. Of people. <laughs> yeah. I love watching him fly. Uh, one of the questions I've got for you is uh, what are you doing in terms of ocean survival gear? You've got a lot of long, big, empty stretches there over ocean. The ocean survival gear we've got on board, we plan to never use. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, um, we, we've got a, it, it, we've done a huge amount of research because there's two problems here. Number one is you don't want to use it, but you've got to have it. But number two is the weight. We, we've got to be very, very careful on our weight. So what we've done, we've got a covered life raft, and, and they're actually blinking tricky to get hold of because the ones that are, a lot of the ones that are advertised aren't actually um, uh, CASA certified. Oh, okay. So you're technically not allowed to use them. So you can't get a two-place, co- a two-person covered raft that's CASA certified or FAA certified for that matter either. So we've, we've got a four-place one that's getting loaned to us and then um, a company by the name of Australasian Marine and Safety, they're sponsoring the uh, life vests. Okay. And they're the Bravo Aero Marine life vests. They're very lightweight, and the bloke who, the sponsor, was just, just incredible. Australian Maritime Systems, that's the name of them. Okay. Australian Maritime Systems. Um, I called him up about his life vest, and he said, look, he said, we'll, we'll, we'll give them to you. The other thing is uh, we're carrying a survival kit with it as well, an ocean survival kit. Um, a bit expensive, but interestingly enough, a local meat work sponsored that. Okay. Pay for it. Feed the man. Um, but it's basically got <laughs> everything you need within that survival kit to survive 14 days on the water. So food, you know, well, not food. I wouldn't call it food. Yeah. Things, things that you ingest <laughs> to ensure you don't die. Rations. It classifies food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But, um, that's that's the kit we're carrying. And then um, AST have come board come on board with a um, a satellite phone, an Iridium okay. phone. And then, um, naturally, we're also carrying uh, McMurdo PLBs as well yep. that will fit into our life vest. Well, that's that's cool on the ocean survival front. That's and you've got a lot of sponsors here. Uh, what other sponsors have you got stepping up to help out? As I said earlier, we, we're very humble that the people that have come on board. You know, got Mahindra and Gibson Aeronautics who have you know major sponsors. But then, um, naturally, we can't go past. Uh, Bendigo Aviation Services. Yep. They're looking after you know all our topping up of our training and renewals and making sure that we're completely spot on with that. Um, and then we've got Entech Media who've designed our website for us. Yep. They keep that going. Um, a new friend, Dick Smith. He's he sponsored the flight as well. Oh, and cool. he's also Excellent. been um, very, very helpful with his advice and, and, and what publications to use. And, and then we've got okay. David Clark who've given us their latest well, their really good quality ENC headsets. Oh, cool. And then ICOM have come on board with a waterproof transceiver so the, with a VOR in it, which is pretty cool. Jeez. And then you can plug your headset into into this portable uh, transceiver. So if you get a complete electric failure, you can plug your headsets into this into this transceiver and have a VOR and, and still basically have electronic communications with a complete avionics failure, which is great. That's that's awesome. Yeah, and that, they, they donated a whole lot for free. Wow, so, excellent. Um, 
and then Talos have come on board, the people oh, cool. the yep. Bushmaster, yep. Yep. And then, as I before, I mentioned the Australian Maritime Systems, yep. um, AST. Um, yeah, it's, it's been fantastic. You know, yeah. I, I take my hat off to these guys because naturally we can't do it without them. No, that's awesome. You got there's a lot of really great great people stepping forwards. Uh, mm. Now we've just got to get you some more cash somehow. And, and there's also been a lot of people personally, and and to be quite honest with you, Stephen and Grant, uh, this has probably been the most humbling part for me is the amount of people that have come up to me quietly and given personal money you know that they've got to say yeah. like one one girl came up and gave me two and a half thousand dollars and she's one of the lowest paid workers in the department wow and uh, she said you know with what i was doing you know she said she really felt she should put some money towards the flight you know and, and that that means volumes i mean even our local um member of parliament steve gibbons you know yeah. he's put in money you know and and that you know his own personal money and you know another person came up and put in three and a half thousand dollars towards their visas and, and stuff like that you know and and when you're really really discouraged and to be quite frank the last couple of days you know we're looking at three weeks to go and still 160 grand you know it gets very discouraging at times but when you look at the people that have sacrificed their own personal money so that this flight can occur that in a sense it really lights a fire on you that you've got to make this happen one of the questions i was going to ask you too guys was uh, particularly for the long the longer legs with you uh, where you're over water for just about the whole time how do you go for fuel you carry supplemental fuel uh, fuel bladders perhaps inside the aircraft uh, as, as some of the ferry pilots do when they, they bring the light aircraft across how are you achieving that we have a thousand litre turtle tank inside a bladder as well um, so it'll be about 1330 litres we'll have on board which should give us up around 24 hours endurance uh, there's a couple of flights that are over 19 hours the um, Hawaii into into uh, California and uh, from Brazil across to uh, Ghana so both them are a bit over the 19 hours, so we're going to take off in the evening while it's still daylight and fly through the night and land in daylight the next, well, probably around lunch the next day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what sort of altitudes? Are you, are you looking for a bit of uh, reasonable altitude, or I guess it depends on the winds aloft? Yeah, we'll probably try and, um, can, we've got oxygen on board, but we'll try and conserve that as much as we can and just use it when there's um, something to go over or or uh, some good winds up there. So, yeah, we'll probably try to travel around 11 or 12 and... Uh, and go up if there's something a reason to go up there. Now you're okay. taking the uh, the turbocharged uh, GA8 air van, the TC model. That's the newer one, isn't it? Yeah, they've just got the turbo out in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, so that's uh, going to be a big benefit because if you go with the uh, normally aspirated, they reckon about three and a half thousand is the best you can get when you're uh, full of fuel. Right. Yeah, yeah. When you're carrying that much weight in terms of the fuel and and all the extra gear you've got to carry, it's it, you need that extra power. Yeah. So you mentioned that your local member has uh, chipped in and helped out. Have, have you been able to approach the federal government? Um, he's a local federal member. Oh, okay. Um, and we actually approached him because we heard that he had con- uh, contacts, close contacts with Qantas. Um, ah. And, uh, yeah, he's actually been talking to him the last couple of days. So that's sort of why we approached him. And uh, he was fairly keen. When he was a young fellow, he actually did a few fine lessons. And then uh, the band he was in there, all the, all the music got burnt in a, in a car fire. Oh, no. So he had to uh, stop the flying lessons and replace all the gear. So yep. that was the last he did of it. Okay. Well, it'll be good if you can uh, help uh, bring Qantas around. That'd be good. Yeah, yeah, it'll make a, make a big difference. I suppose one other point that uh, Ken never brought up really right from the start, this was just going to be a malaria flight, and then we realised, uh, well, Ken realised, that it was actually a world first. Um, everyone thought it was done back in the 60s and 69 okay. with a Victor, but um, it turned out that Victor, when, when Ken actually looked at it, not sure why he looked at it, but um, <laughs> he started looking on the internet at the Earth Rounders, and uh, it turned out it was actually made in New Zealand, that particular plane, so, um, mm-hmm. so it doesn't qualify. So that's ah. why no one's tried to do it in the far. In the, you know, it hasn't been done for so long. Kiwis did it back in the 60s, and we're finally getting around to it. 
Right, okay. So it, this is the first time for an Australian aircraft because I know that there were the guys yeah. from South Africa who took a, um, a light, special light sport aircraft around. Oh, yeah, uh, a couple of years ago they did that. Yeah, yeah. That, they unfortunately just lost that aircraft during spin trials. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the one. It was. It was. Um, I seem to remember reading that it was that particular aircraft was being was then being involved in spin trials that they didn't have to do, but would like Cessna were doing it to get the full, yeah, you know, understand the full envelope. And uh, the BRS didn't quite work, and both pilots on board had to uh, bail out. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, that was the one that that was a South African aircraft. They flew around the world, and so there's been a Kiwi. But you guys will be the first to do an Australian aircraft. Yeah, Australian designed and manufactured. So yeah. Cool. And like you said before, you couldn't get uh, a better a better aircraft to showcase. You know what the local manufacturing does here than the uh, than the Airvan. It's been around a long time, and it's a it's a, a solid, reliable, and highly thought of aircraft. So it's it's great to see yeah. that, uh, that they've yeah, come on board. Yeah, certainly well designed one. Yeah, just down there talking to the designer and George. It's uh, He's um, a busy man, but he'll spend time with you and spend all day if you want to listen. Brain's amazing the way he works. He's just an incredible guy. But talking about the South African plane actually reminds me of another um, sponsor there, Indigosat. They actually sponsored that flight, that South African flight, and they're going to sponsor ours as well, supplying a portable uh, tracking device for us. Oh, cool. Excellent. And, and the software, so we can uh, go on the internet and you can find out where we are at any time. It's um, it'll Very be handy. Linked up to, it'll be linked up to uh, the probably the master switch or something and after the master's off or on and, uh, and the location it's every six minutes it'll just give you a location where the plane is yeah that's that's the family loves that don't they yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay guys just before we wrap it up here why don't we just tell the folks if they want to get in contact with you uh, how would they go about doing that the best way to contact us is, is through our website on, on our website you can you've got the details there to contact us either become a sponsor or donate towards Malaria or contact us personally. Um, and Tim and I both are, are very happy to be contacted individually as well. Uh, my number is 0428-104-375 and my email address is ken at millionsagainstmalaria.com. And it sounds like you don't know my phone number, so 0413-179-268 and it's just tim at millionsagainstmalaria.com. We'll put we'll put those numbers and um, and email addresses in the show notes, uh, which does of course mean they'll be on the web page. But I think you've already got them on your web page, don't you? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick note for everyone overseas that uh, where the guys were saying O four in the front of that number, just drop the O and put plus six one, so country code six one, and then the four etc for their numbers, and uh, that'll get you straight through if you're calling from overseas with uh, uh, happy messages and or even better money. Folks, if you want to follow the guys here on Twitter, there uh, you can follow them there. Their ID there is M A M, as in Mike Alpha Mike Flight. 2010 so everybody should uh, follow Ken and Tim there so they can keep up with what's going on they're on YouTube and Facebook so uh, just like us here at the podcast guys you're everywhere online you should be <laughs> thank you that's cool so once again folks the website is www.millionsagainstmalaria.com everybody uh, who listens to this show let's get on board and uh, support these two guys it's a huge effort they're putting in so um, yep. yeah let's get in and support them they're kicking off on the uh, 20th of March from Diggers Rest in Victoria and heading off so uh, yeah let's get out to that air show and and uh, Ken Evers and Tim Price, thanks very much for joining us and good luck with the flight. Really, really appreciate being able to uh, talk to you guys. We've, we've heard about you, so it's a real honour to talk to you personally. It's been great. And welcome back, folks. I tell you what, uh, Grant, that's going to be a, a long flight, a long time to be stuck in a small aircraft. I mean, uh, I guess it's uh, bigger than a 172, but still, the uh, the GA8 Airvan is it's not a huge aircraft to be stuck in for all those hours. Could you imagine you and I being stuck 
going around the world. I mean, we have enough fun just going a few hours up to Shepparton and so on, don't we? Yeah, well, stuck would be the word. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I need to get into that. Okay, well, I'll move this bit down. Oh, no. Oh. Yes, yes. No, I'm still working on that uh, that, that C5 LSA. So anyway, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a concept in progress. Oh, mate, that would just, that would rock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> LSA certified to land a C5. Yeah. Anyway, uh, folks, we might just move on to the next thing we're going to do here. And it's... Thank you, Studio Sound Effect. It's shout-outs time. Woo-hoo. Yes, that's right. Our shout-out for this episode is to Twink, Mr. Tom. Uh, Tom travels by under the handle of Twink on Twitter, and he gets not only a shout-out, he also gets the award for pure, sheer, self-indulged masochism. Twink has listened to all 25 episodes, as it was then, but now I think he actually got the 26 in as well. He listened to all our episodes in just under a week. Wow. Now, mate, what more can we say? But uh, how's life down there in that padded cell? Yeah, so if anybody could recommend a good psychologist for uh, for Tom, I think uh, he's certainly going to need it, mate. What a mighty effort that is. Yeah, I know. You'd, uh, most people have difficulty just putting up with us once a week, let alone all of it. In, I mean, that's wow. That's a lot of hours to that's get through of, of us. I tell you what, I go back and listen to some of our earlier shows, Grant, and I can't even listen to them, so I can't imagine how it would be for anybody listening to them now. He's a braver man than I am, that's for sure. Yeah, excellent, mate. So, uh, gee, thanks very much for that, mate. And uh, you yeah, actually met Tom down at Point Cook uh, last week at the air show when we were there, so uh, it was nice to nice to meet a few listeners who, like I said before, we're not related to. And uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we should mention the uh, the Point Cook recording day that we had the other week. Uh, that'll the interviews that we did for uh, during that air show will be in our next episode number twenty eight. No names, no pack drill, but I tell you what, Grant, we got some uh, some great interviews in that. On that oh day. come on, are we going to drop a little bit of a teaser? I don't know. It's up to you, mate. Oh, mate, what more can one say? But Pilatus PC twenty one PC twenty one test pilot. Yeah. Yes, that's right, folks. I've now got a job as a test pilot for Pilatus, so I'll be uh, signing off and we'll have to look for a new coast. No, that wasn't it, Grant, was it? <laughs> no, no, not unless we're doing the weight and balance tre- stress test. Yeah. You in the front, me in the back, and if the airplane hangs together, woohoo! <laughs> you know, Grant, I think we're going to give folks the uh, the impression that we're rather large-boned. Yeah, I am. I've got the big bond look, Mon. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm sure that underneath all this padding, there's the body of an athlete. Anyway, so that'll be an <laughs> episode. Get out. That'll be episode number 28, so that's it for shout-outs. Grant, was there anything else? Yeah. I, I can hear a noise. Oh, just when I thought it was safe to leave. Yeah. Well, I guess he must be coming to my place, the postman, mate, because uh, he wouldn't know where you live now that you're moving. No, no, that's part of the fun of it, isn't it? Some listener mail. We've, uh, well, Grant, a bit of a mere copper here because we've we've been a little bit behind in answering our listener mail. But There's this whole lot of email that I want to get through, and I've been slightly discussed with a bit of day job and a whole lot of moving prep. Uh, it's been, been coming down to the wire. So to those of you who have sent emails through that I haven't been responding and saying hi to and carrying on the conversation, my apologies, mere culpa. Okay, the first bit of listener mail that we've got to read out this week, Grant, uh, actually came back on February 22, and it's from a gentleman in the UK by the name of Steve Cook. And Steve produces the Flying Podcast over there in the UK, so uh, that's great. And he says, uh, hey guys, just found your podcast here on iTunes and started listening this weekend. He actually got a, the recommendation from UCAP. So that's a real thrill that those guys recommended us. So um, yeah, great. He says he produces an aviation podcast over here in the UK. He says he struggled with equality for a while. Well, yeah, we've all been there, mate, so don't worry about that. And uh, yes, yeah, he's invested in 
in some new kit, uh, by which I guess he means recording gear. And uh, yeah, he had some nice things to say about our podcast. And uh, Grant, I don't know whether you have. I've actually downloaded every episode of Flying Podcast. And I'm had, working had, my way through. Yeah, had a listen to them. And uh, yeah, folks, that's a really high quality podcast. The last one I listened to, I haven't listened to them all yet, but the last one I listened to, he actually uh, comes on with a guest and they describe a flight they did from the UK to Israel, which wow. uh, it was fascinating. And uh, actually, I think it was in a diesel powered Piper Warrior, some sort of a diesel powered aircraft. So yeah, fascinating. Uh, really great podcast and uh, great to see that there's some other podcasts around if I can uh, just put my international head on a bit for a minute. And of course, we know that most of the uh, aviation podcasts around the world are from the US and uh, not that that's a problem because they're extremely high quality and they've all become good friends of ours. But it's great to see that, you know, there's some other people outside the US besides us doing aviation podcasts. And uh, yeah, so uh, everybody uh, should tune in there and download Steve Cook's Flying Podcast. That's at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Yep, flyingpodcast.co.uk. And the other uh, listener mail that we wanted to mention this week actually came in back on February 15th uh, from Christy Walker, who's over there in uh, in New Zealand. I think she's in Auckland. Okay. Yeah, so she says uh, that she's just been listening to us on the Airplane Geeks podcast, which is uh, great to hear. And she says here, a quick intro. I'm setting my CPL in Auckland in a few weeks, and then an IFR after that. Should be completely qualified with a multi-engine rating by July this year. Uh, in all honesty, I'd prefer not to instruct as the next logical step in my career and would simply like to fly for an operator. Hmm. Wouldn't we all? Um, uh, yeah, so she just mentioned here that we'd mentioned cadet programs in the podcast and she'd like to know some more about the cadet programs uh, as she's actually an Australian and she'd love to come home and fly once she's completed her training over there in New Zealand. So, yeah, I sent her a few links, Grant, there on um, on what I knew about the cadet programs, the Qantas one and the one at uh, Rex Airways, which I yep. actually have a feeling has folded up now. So folks, we'd just like to put it out there on Christie's behalf. If you know any of any other cadet programs that are going on uh, that uh, might suit her requirements, if you could just uh, drop us a line here at the podcast, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com, and we'll be sure to uh, pass those through to Christy. And we're hoping that we might actually have her on the podcast in the very near future, Grant. Yeah, that'd be awesome to get her on. We are in the process of sorting out times and so on, but of course everything's on hold while I uh, transcendent myself 600 metres. But uh, once that's all over, we should be back on and uh, getting people on on Skype and having chats again. Excellent. Yeah, like I say, folks, uh, if you'd like to uh, offer Christy uh, any advice there, uh, you can do that through us here at the podcast. And, uh, yeah, Grant, of course, as I said before, playing crazy down under at gmail.com, PCDU on Twitter if you'd like to send us a message there. We love hearing from our listeners. And uh, we are starting to notice more and more uh, email coming into our inbox, which is great. It must mean that somebody's listening to us. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> excellent. And, um, of course, our forums as well, Grant, on uh, downwind.com.au. We're getting multiple hundreds of hits there in, in all the uh, different threads on the forums there, which is fantastic to see. Most popular thread at the moment. Oh, it's actually dead level pegging here between the episode 22 thread and the ouch thread, both by Turb, our good friend Turb Coriolis, and they're sitting around 320 hits, uh, followed closely behind by Podcaster's Beer on 297. So uh, a lot of activity going there on the <laughs> subject of Podcaster's Beer, of which I am not an aficionado. Uh, I'm not exactly aficionado. I just like beer. Boy, I tell you what, mate, you sound so tired. I think one beer and you'd be out like a light. Uh, I think I'm going to go have one and crash, yes. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's crash into bed, folks, not crash the plane or the car. Yeah, that's right. Well, we don't want to talk about crashing planes. Uh, I should just mention that I've actually been flying this week. So uh, great, uh, huge thanks to my friend Laurie Burns, for uh, who's a flying instructor and a work colleague of mine and uh, very generously uh, allowed me to go up and start getting a bit of currency again. So, yeah, we took a uh, rather vintage uh, Cessna 172 up uh, from Moorabbin Airport down here in Melbourne and uh, we... Uh, 
uh, tootled on down to Turret and did a couple of touch and goes there. First landing, yeah, pretty good. Second landing was a bit bouncy, wasn't happy with that, but uh, then we shot back to Moorabbin and yeah, I was reasonably happy with the uh, the third landing I did. And the bottom line is, folks, well, we all walked away and here I am recording this. So yeah, what a thrill. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, Sierra Uniform Tango, I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with that aircraft. I don't think it's been at Moorabbin very long. It's uh, 172D, so it's a very old one. I'm, I'm thinking mid-60s. Actually, Continental wow. engines and didn't have electric flaps. So uh, there's only one other Cessna I've ever flown that didn't have electric flaps, and it was a late 60s, maybe mid-60s at best, Cessna 172, and that was way, way back in my days in Arkansas. So, uh, uh, But this plane was beautifully presented, was in perfect condition, actually had a lovely uh, walnut ingrained dash around the steam gauges. Cool. And um, plenty of power on that motor too. I tell you what, it really boogied off the ground. So, yeah, fantastic. And, uh, boy, I tell you what, mate, it was just great to get back up and get flying. <laughs> yeah, and you just loved hearing the gnashing of my teeth as you told me all about it. <laughs> yeah. How many times have I told you about that now, Grant? Uh, at least three, and every time I've reacted the same way. <laughs> That's great, Steve. <laughs> yeah. yeah, excellent. I'll tell you what, my currency has been lapsed for such a long time now. It's it's really just a uh, a real demonstration to me that I really need to get back and do some major grand school. Uh, a lot of things have changed in the uh, ensuing years, I can tell you that much. Um, <laughs> yeah, the basic concepts are still there, but uh, everything else is different. Mainly indeed. flight rules and procedures and user fees. Folks, we're going to have an episode soon where I'm going to have a huge rant about user fees and uh, the huge damage that it's doing to general aviation in this country. It's I was having a look at some of the lists in the uh, FBO where I was the other day, Grant, of uh, some of the user fees just for some of the uh, airports around the Melbourne area and, boy, yeah, out of control. But we'll save that for another episode, folks. That's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back very soon with another episode. We've uh, got a few more interviews that we've already recorded. Uh, we've just got to wait for Grant to uh, get uh, re-established and get back online. Grant, how, long, how, many, uh, how many hours do you think it'll be that you'll be offline? Way too many. I uh, will be surviving on my Crackberry to keep some semblance of online action and um, yeah probably going into cyber cafes and offices a lot more than I normally do yeah I'll tell you what uh, they can take Grant's internet away but I'll tell you what I wouldn't want to be anywhere near Grant if anyone tried to take his crackberry off him that would be a major disaster it keeps me linked man <laughs> Grant's the most connected person I've ever known folks it's, uh, it's amazing <laughs> Am I, I mean you gnash your teeth about me flying mate I'll tell, tell you what I gnash my teeth about not having a blackberry I really <laughs> need to get one <laughs> Uh, you know, they're handy. These kind of phones, iPhones, Blackberries, all that kind of stuff, Androids, they're pretty cool. Very handy in some ways, but can be, you, you, you need to exercise some control over them. Apparently, I'm learning. I'm like thinking about it. Mm, you're lying too. Anyway, yeah, I know. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> anyway, folks, as you're walking through the world of online aviation podcasts and pondering whether or not Grant could really survive without his Blackberry, always remember this my Crackberry rules. And? Sorry. <laughs> It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. I, I have a vision of a uh, of a you know high definition TV program uh, in about ten years time called Playing Crazy Down Under. Yeah. Um, Wonderful. <laughs> and, and we'll have we'll have stunt doubles. Don't worry, it won't be us <laughs> on the show. <laughs> oh yes, we'll all be long gone. Probably we'll have been seized by some uh, merchant banker and uh, leveraged and franchised and, uh, and yeah. completely unrecognisable. Be like a scene off Futurama. We'll all be bottled heads, no doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> We have a solid light. Yes. Your lack of trust disturbs me, Grant. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, it's on the checklist. It's on the checklist. It's only from bitter experience. Don't worry. Yeah, things get on the checklist. If you think we're professionals, I'll just just point out that I'm a train driver, so... (laughs) And a pilot. (laughs) Tim, you better talk, because I've been cut off talking. (laughs) Yeah, you can see how Ken loves the talk. I'm going to have to work out how to switch the intercom off when we're flying. Um... (laughs) All right, well, just as we wrap it up here, guys, uh, what do we tell the, the listeners uh, that are listening to the show? Well, of course, they would be listening. They wouldn't be listening. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. They won't be watching let, it. let me just start that again. <laughs> it's late. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long week of recording. Dot AU? Yeah. yeah. I'll put that in. <laughs> oh, nice. You watch me fix that, buddy. You watch me. I'll fix it. You'll fix that in post. I'll fix that in post. Indeed, yes, let's. Indeed. You're supposed to say indeed after I finish anything like that, Grant. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you can just edit out the bit that was me not going indeed. No, I, I know how it looks on the screen, see? So I know I know it's a cut point. <laughs> well, there's a big gap. I mean, that's a pretty obvious cut point. <laughs> that's right. They're, uh, oh, yeah, no, I don't need to say anything. Yeah. No, that works. Just cut me out of it. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> I'll live. Ray. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's, boy, it's late at night. <laughs> that's right. So here we go. Ray. Uh, thread. Did I say pink? I just threw that by Crackberry rules just for the hell of it to see what you'd do. Yeah. Uh, I just had a feeling you were going to do something sneaky. <laughs>